Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hello. Oh my God, I am so excited about what's about to happen. Beyond excited. Okay, here's what's going on. We are turning the show over to Gina Delvac, owner of GinaDelvac.com, the website that is still not up. <laughs> <laughs> the yummiest voice in radio and in podcasting, Gina Delvac. <laughs> oh my gosh, wear your like softest cashmere and like settle in for this because it's going to be very sexy and great. This is CYG producer Gina Delvac. My website is in the works and I hope you're very cozy. On this week's agenda, we're talking about bisexuality, the letter B in the LGBTQ alphabet. Well, before we jump into my sexy episode, Anne, um, we have an announcement. Oh my God. Okay. So as you may already know from listening to this podcast, or maybe because you follow Amina on Instagram, she was diagnosed with endometrial cancer in December. Thankfully, her doctors caught it early and she's getting the very best medical care. But throughout her diagnosis and treatment recently and in recent years, she has received lots of blood transfusions, um, which got us thinking, me and Gina, about a blood drive as a way for us and for all of you to show our support for her. So Ann Friedman has coordinated a nationwide blood drive coming this March and April, hopefully to a city near you. We're going to be in a bunch of different places. These donations don't go directly to Amina, but they help so many people in need. And we want to especially give a shout out to our African-American listeners. There is an urgent need from donations from people from all backgrounds and communities. And currently there is a preponderance of white people donating blood. And this is where you all come in. Obviously, we need people to show up and like give the blood. <laughs> so let's do that. Let's all show Amina some deep, deep CYG love. Go to callyourgirlfriend.com slash blood drive. There's two D's in there, but no space to find out if you're eligible to give blood and sign up for a specific date and time to donate. We're super excited because the slots are filling up quickly for our drives, which are in LA, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, DC, Austin, and potentially uh, another city or two coming soon. If you're not in one of those cities or our drive dates don't work for you, no big deal. There's a form on our site where you can tell us that you gave so that we can count that too. There are lots of other ways to help too if you can't donate blood. Those of us here at CYG, i.e. all three of us, <laughs> think a lot of the restrictions on who is allowed to give blood in this country are pretty fucking discriminatory, especially when it comes to donations from gay men. But those regulations are set by the FDA and all of the blood banks that we've partnered with for this drive have to comply with FDA regulations. So it's not our point of view. It's not even necessarily their point of view, but we all have to comply with the FDA. Once again, you can go to callyourgirlfriend.com slash blood drive. And if you go with your bestie, either to one of our drives or on your own, tag your selfie with the hashtag Bleedin for Amina, B-L-E-E-D-I-N, the number four, Amina. 
uh, yes, get a crew, give blood. Like this is this is a social thing as well as like a good deed, which is why we're so excited about it. And I know all of you are going to give so much. Get all the info, sign up, callyourgirlfriend.com slash blood drive. So Anna and Amina sometimes like to tease me about my public radio voice, which is definitely in full effect right now. It's late on Thursday night when I'm normally finishing up editing the show and I'm recording this introduction in my bedroom, which feels like a fitting setting for a kind of more intimate conversation that I was really interested in having about the ways in which women express our identities sexually and specifically for those of us like me who identify as bisexual because it's a sexual orientation that is an identity much more than, say, a community. Bisexual people tend to move between queer and hetero worlds. So I wanted to hear more about other people's experiences. First, we're going to hear from Jen Wenzel, who is an assistant professor in the program in human sexuality at the University of Minnesota. And quite a bit of her research focuses on bisexual people's experience on a qualitative and quantitative level in terms of health outcomes, in terms of sexual satisfaction. So we're going to hear more about that from Jen. And then later I talked to Katie DiCibato, a novelist, writer, and hilarious human on Twitter about her personal experience. We're both bi. She's in a relationship with a woman. I'm in a relationship with a man. So we kind of look at some of the intersecting ways that we think about ourselves and also how differently people might see us. Before we get started, I wanted to say that this is only the beginning of this conversation. For this episode, we're really talking about bisexuality in women and predominantly in cisgendered women, but we would love to hear all kinds of experiences that you have with your sexuality, with your identity. And as always, you can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail, 714-681-CYGF. Okay, now here's Jen. My name's Jennifer Wenzel. I'm an assistant professor at the Program in Human Sexuality, which is a specialty unit within family medicine and community health here at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Um, so I'm a, both a professor here, but I'm also a psychologist. So I see clients 60% um, of my time, most of my week. And then the rest of my week is dedicated to kind of research and teaching and scholarly work. And thanks so much for being on the podcast, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. I'm a fan, so thank you for having me. So one of the things that really intrigued me about the abstract that you sent over was a couple of phrases that you use in your research. One of them is mixed orientation relationship, and another one is bi-negativity. And what do those mean? Kind of unpack. Can you unpack those a little bit for us? Absolutely. So mixed orientation relationship is is sort of of a newer phrase that I'm really trying to start to introduce through my research. Um, Historically, in the research literature and, and sort of in the clinical literature as well for therapists, um, we used to hear the phrase mixed orientation marriage um, or mm. moms, MOMs. Um, and what that really referred to, and for a long time, the definition um, that was being used throughout the academic and the clinical literature um, was there is a heterosexual or a straight spouse married to somebody who comes out either as lesbian, gay, or bisexual, or in some way has some same sex attraction. Um, and this definition was used for years, it still continues to be used quite a bit. 
Um, and so the work I'm trying to do, which really stems from my clinical work, is to try to really expand that definition to make it more inclusive. So we know, for example, not everyone's married, so it's, the spouse piece is problematic in that definition. Sure. Um, we also know that that definition of a mixed orientation marriage really obscures um, sexual minority relationships. So somebody, for example, who's bisexual dating somebody who is lesbian or gay. And that traditional definition of mixed orientation totally erases those relationships. So my work is really kind of picked up in that place. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And especially when you think about who had access to marriage over the years and not to mention how heterosexual rates of marriage are declining. Absolutely. And so what we saw, and you would hear this um, in kind of clinical conferences too, when therapists would get together to talk about cases um, or things they were seeing, but also in the research literature, these mixed orientation marriages back then using that phrase it was really seen as sort of a, a catastrophe and a trauma. So, you know, folks would be married for decades, right? And presumably heterosexual. Nobody really questioned that because usually it was a cisgender man, a cisgender woman, presumed heterosexual, right? And then right. somebody came out as either lesbian, gay, bisexual, same-sex attracted in some way. And it was seen as this big explosion. And how do we save the marriage? How do we prevent divorce? Can these couples kind of work through this, this sexual orientation difference or these attraction differences? And people have different feelings about whether or not that's possible, for sure. Um, but I also think that that's, that's not what we're seeing as much of these days. And so, like I said, my research is really informed by my clinical work. And so a lot of, a lot of the couples I was seeing, I think there's a younger generational difference in this, too. But a lot of the couples I was seeing in my office already knew that they had differing sexual orientations, either before they got together or shortly thereafter. Um, because I'm an out bisexual woman myself, a lot of the couples I was getting, somebody in that couple identified as bi. Um, and so this was coming up in session, even if that wasn't exactly what they were presenting to therapy to talk about, um, it would often come up. And when I looked in the research literature to say, hey, what do we know about this? There was really, really nothing. And just to get a sense of numbers, do you have a, an approximate sense of how many bi-identified people there are in the U.S. or worldwide? The prevalence rates are really hard to get. Um, there's a Williams Institute research brief that came out in 2011, which at this point is a little bit dated now. Um, but they did a nice job of looking at kind of representative studies um, and estimated that it's about 1.8% of the population, which is actually bigger than the combined numbers for lesbian and gay identified people. So. Um, there are several population-based studies that show that bisexual individuals as sort of a subgroup of the queer and trans community are actually the largest subgroup, which is something I don't think a lot of folks realize. I think it's so interesting because, I mean, I've, we've been using kind of academic terms, but um, I think that I'm also an out bisexual person in a mixed orientation relationship. I have a heterosexual male partner. And um I mean, I think there's a sense that it's just not cool to be bi. <laughs> Did you hear that from any of your study participants? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think you had asked me earlier um, or in your email perhaps about what is, now that we have more folks identifying as queer or pansexual, yeah. um, that certainly came up in these focus groups. And what we found, the research team found, is that folks would use different labels depending on the safety of the context that they were in. Oh, that's so interesting. Say more. Yeah. Yeah. So some folks would tell us, you know, I feel like when I came out to my family, like my family knows gay, lesbian, bisexual, like they, they sort of have a framework for that, even though they might not know like exactly what that is. They kind of, they have an idea. Um, and so when I'm with my family um, or when I came out to my family, I use the term bisexual. But when I'm out kind of with my peers and with my friends, 
I use the term queer and that feels better in that context because I know that they know what that means mm. um, and whatever it is that that means for that person because I think it's different depending on who you ask. But So we heard that a lot where people would say, well, depending on who I'm with or if it's safe, um, sometimes I won't identify at all. You know, Sometimes I'll let people assume that I'm lesbian or straight or gay um, based on my partner. So that's something that also happens in these mixed orientation relationships. Totally. And um, we connected through one of your colleagues and some, one of the reasons she recommended I talk to you was the feeling of invisibility that bisexual people can have since we are attracted to people of multiple genders. So if you're in a long monogamous relationship, there is that sense of you are what your partner is or you are kind of what you demonstrate to the world. Yeah, I'll never forget. Um, this was many years back, but I had a, a friend, a close friend who is fairly knowledgeable about sexual and gender minority issues say to me, well, you're straight now. You're dating a straight person. So that makes you straight. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's not how this works. Um, you know, my identity is not dictated by virtue of whoever I happen to be dating. Um, that's that's not how identity salience works. Um, but I mean, this was somebody who was also in, in the academic world and frankly should have known. And so if that's happening kind of in my ivory tower bubble, you can just imagine what's happening kind of in the everyday world. Totally. And it, you sort of hit on this, but I think it's some of this is changing really fast generationally. But definitely, I think people kind of around our age, you know, 30s or older, there's still so many misconceptions and kind of even that's still the discomfort around the word queer, the unappropriated sense of that word. Mm -hmm. What I heard a lot from, from our research participants were ways in which they fought for visibility in their mixed orientation relationships. And it sort of depended on, on kind of how out they were in general, as you might imagine. Um, but, you know, making sure that they were at um, queer and trans social events. We here in the Twin Cities are particularly lucky. We actually have a nonprofit here specifically for bisexual individuals, which is something I've lived in a couple of major cities across the country. It's something I've never seen before. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of bisexual, like out, proud, bisexual specific community resources here. Um, and so folks will talk about, you know, going to those events with my partner who does not identify as bisexual, um, or if I'm dating somebody straight, like um, making sure that they're with me at, at the pride festivals, things like that, um, or that I'm constantly coming out to people because I don't want to be erased. I don't want to be assumed something based on how people perceive my partner. Part of this episode for me is motivated by a personal sense of being a queer person in a uh, heterosexual relationship that my queerness, it doesn't not that it doesn't matter, but in the fight for civil rights, it feels much lower on the list because I know I do experience those privileges of being perceived as a heterosexual woman. Yeah, and you know, I think every now and then you'll hear the term straight passing applied to bisexual mm. folks. Um, that's a term that I struggle with because I think there's, there's some truth, right? There's some privilege, as you've acknowledged. But I go back to, you know, that's also erasure, right? That's erasure yeah. of identities, and that can have profoundly negative impacts on people, um, mentally, physically, health-wise. Um, and so I, I struggle with that with that concept and that phrase. Yeah, and what are some of the health outcomes or issues that are specific to bisexual people, bisexual women in particular? Bisexual women in particular, um, the existing research that we have shows an alarming rate of intimate partner violence. Um, yeah. Bisexual women um, are survivors and victims of intimate partner violence at a higher level than any other gender or sexual orientation, which is horrifying to think about. So that in particular, 
Um, certainly we have some data to suggest that there are higher rates of particular types of mental health concerns, so depression, anxiety, um, kind of top that list. There are also pretty high rates of lifetime suicidality, um, ideation, not necessarily attempts, but thoughts about suicide, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah. for me as a psychologist, you know, that's kind of the foundation of my training. That's really alarming. That's a problem, um, especially when a lot of the data would suggest that bisexual folks are the biggest kind of subcomponent of the queer and trans community in terms of numbers. And we don't hear about them and they're not bisexual specific resources in most places. And I think it's really important to say, and this is true of, of any sort of sexual or gender minority that we might be talking about, right? But it's not that they're having mental health concerns because they're bi, right? That's not a causal thing. Um, the research would really suggest it's about that minority stress piece, right? It's about feeling erased. It's about feeling rejected from both the lesbian and gay community and the straight community, right? Like, where do you fit in if nobody wants you? Um, that level of rejection has really, really negative mental health consequences for a lot of people. Yeah, it sounds like really profound consequences. Um, I want to flip also to a slightly less um, sad side of things <laughs> because um, I think uh, there are lots of I resilient think... and amazing bisexual people doing fantastic Absolutely. things. Absolutely. And also I think that there's a lot of joy to being a bisexual person. Yeah. Um, and we're going to hear a little bit more about this later in the episode as well. Um, you, One of the things that you look at was um, sexual satisfaction. And that's an area that you've been exploring more that doesn't hadn't existed previously in the research. Do I have that correct? Yes. And so what are you finding about what bisexual people report about how happy they are getting it on? That it seems to be going well. I mean, what we are finding is sort of um, in tune with previous literature that if there are mental health concerns, depression, anxiety, so on, that sexual functioning and satisfaction tends to take a hit, which makes a lot of sense. I think if you're not feeling well emotionally, psychologically, it's hard to kind of want to be getting it on and feel really kind of intimate and... Right. Um, Insert RuPaul here, yeah. Um, and so we, we tend to see that correlation as mental health concerns go up, sexual satisfaction and functioning go down. And I think that's commonsensical in some ways. So that's been sort of replicated in my research. Um, but in terms of satisfaction, regardless of sort of the partner sexual orientation, um, we're finding that things are, are good. Like people are reporting um, the ability to be creative and to be experimental and to be focused on pleasure with their partners. And part of that comes out of, you know, what we heard over and over again is being in a mixed orientation relationship requires way more communication than I ever thought it would because mm -hmm. there is this major difference. It doesn't have to be a bad thing, but it is a difference that's, you know, it's a core part of your identity. And so if you are actively talking about that with your partner, it means that you probably have a better level and foundation of communication, which makes things better in bed, you know, if you're able to communicate. Um, this is something that sex therapists have known for years, right? Like, the more you're able to talk about it and talk with your partner and feel comfortable opening up to your partner, the better sex you're probably going to have. Right. You don't have to be into dirty talking, but talking will make things better and dirtier. <laughs> what you love, what you're into, what are your, what are your hard limits, right? Totally. Right, rather than that sense of someone else needs to guess for me or tell me or open me up, you know, you can be clearer about and own what you want. Jennifer, anything else that we should talk about, either that's salient in your research or that we missed about kind of like setting the scene for bi people? I would just say, you know, this grant that I just submitted, the National Institutes of Health are kind of finally on board. Um, they use the term sexual and gender minorities, which is why I've been using that term today. But um, it was just a year and a half ago or so in 2016 that they said, this is a health disparity population. We know that 
the LGBTQ community is facing huge health disparities. And so this grant that I'm putting in is sort of saying, yes, and this isn't just LGBTQ versus like heterosexual folks in terms of health disparities, but within the queer and trans community, we see these major health disparities and bisexual folks are at particular risk. And so that's actually what this grant is about that I've just put in. That's awesome. Um, Thanks so much for being on the show, Jennifer. We appreciate it. It was great to meet you. Thanks, Gina. Thanks again to Jennifer Wenzel at the University of Minnesota Program in Human Sexuality. More info about Jen on our website at callyourgirlfriend.com. So thanks for sticking with me on this journey into the many multiple experiences of bisexual people. My next guest is writer Katie DeCebedo, who was kind enough to come to my house and sit in my living room and answer my many questions about her identity, her sex life, and um, some of her favorite depictions and least favorite depictions of bisexuality in media. Check it out. My name is Katie DeCebedo, and you mean how I want to be identified in terms of my sexuality? Sure, and also in terms of Um, what you do. I'm a writer, and um, I identify as bisexual or queer. Okay. Uh, And that's why we're chatting. Yes, and we're both cisgender white women. Yes. We are both extremely privileged people on a social level. Yeah. And some of the stuff that we maybe both experience differently or in common would be pretty different with someone who has a different intersection of identities than ours. Absolutely. And for me, um, I'm like, not only am I like a cisgendered white woman, but I tend to be like pretty straight presenting. Like if I'm not out like literally with my girlfriend or even when I am, which we'll probably talk about later, I don't come off as queer unless... I'm really, really marking myself as queer, which I don't do generally. I, t- I just tend to present pretty straight in terms of like how I dress. And I think that part of that is just because like there's some pretty stereotypical ideas of like the way that like lesbians look out there and that doesn't tend to flatter girls who have big boobs, which I do have. Yeah. And I'm not like very high femme because, you know, you see those like queer women that are like, you can like tell they're queer, like like they're queer marked, but like super high femme. It's like a vibes thing. I don't go there either. I'm also a queer person. I identify as bisexual and in that kind of being marked or not frequently feel like 
a queer person in straight clothing, not just by my gender and fashion presentation, but also because I'm in a long-term relationship with a man. So mm-hmm. I think we are kind of in, as you're hearing us stake out, <laughs> we, we have a lot of demographic qualities in common. Yes where we live, what city, our age, our rough gender presentation. Um, although I'm a brunette. Yeah. I love I'm being a, a brunette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a funny thing about being a queer person or a bisexual person in particular in a closed relationship where you have the piece that is your, and everyone has this to some extent, you have a piece that is your identity and then you have a piece that is your partner. And right. just being so marked by essentially who you fuck versus in that moment versus who you are to yourself. How did you come to embrace the labels you do or don't choose? And kind of what was your youthful journey towards like picking the unpopular B on the rainbow of letters? Well, what's interesting is like when I was coming out as bisexual, I came out for the first time to anybody outside of like my own head when I was 18. I was pretty well aware of it when I was younger and super consciously did not come out in high school because I didn't want to make high school harder for me. I came out when I was in college and at the time that I was coming out, I had, you know, just made new friends who at the time identified as bisexual. I don't know if they would now. I didn't feel like the only person that was taking on that label at the moment, which it was like very comfortable um, to sort of be like, I felt like I had a community of not just queer women around me, but a community of like bisexual women. Some of the people that I've remained closer to their identity, their sexuality has evolved either has, has evolved away from bisexuality as a label. And I don't know. I just, I, I never evolved away from it just due to my nature, I'd really thought through my sexuality before I first came out. And it felt right. And I can also be a little bit of a contrarian. So I'm not the kind of person I would, I'm the kind of person that would dig in my heels a little bit if when told that, like when given like cultural feedback that like being bisexual is like not cool or like not real. Like I'm the kind of person that would dig in my heels, not reassess. So I think that probably to a certain extent, a lot of the kind of negative things that people say about bisexuality has like helped me to reaffirm that word as like the word that I use to describe my identity. I just want to be totally clear that like the word itself Mm. by of course being a prefix that means to that like bisexuality meaning somebody that is sexually interested in two genders you know male and female that's not how I define it to me bisexuality is about being sexually and romantically open to dating people of any and all genders gender is not a factor in the way that I develop sexual and romantic relationships. And so that encompasses the entire spectrum of gender rather than just two. So I just want to say that up front, like that is how I identify. And I, and I do not think that there's any problem with using the word bisexual and defining it like that, especially considering the way that like language evolves so quickly. Totally. Bi as a prefix does not have to automatically mean that you know, you're upholding the gender binary by identifying that way. And I think it's kind of like... A, would be an ignorant and reductive argument for people to think that nowadays. I agree that I think the word bisexual feels like it arises from cisgendered people's approach to sexuality, that it's hard to think, I, it's hard for me to picture 
yeah, at least for myself, it's the label I feel comfortable in that I don't know how I would feel if I myself were gender queer because I know and I, I totally understand that. I, I do think it, that it like it's it's a desire as old as time, but as a <laughs> word, I think it, it has it has the flair of the 90s. Totally. Um, it has like the the stink of the 90s all over it. It, it, it it's it. Just because a word was like born somewhere and was born out of a mentality does not mean that that word stays that way. As soon as a word right. is born, it becomes flexible. Yeah, totally. Just like sexuality. Hey, ha. You mentioned coming out and the process of coming out multiple times. What's your current feeling on that? Because you have written about this in the past with your girlfriend, mm-hmm. Anna Dorn, co-bylined. Yes, that was fun. <laughs> By bylines. <laughs> yeah, um, by byline. Do you feel like because your girlfriend is also um, femme presenting that you are sort of subjected to this reclaiming and declaiming your identities more often? Oh, yeah. I mean, one thing about coming out that I think the idea of it sort of culturally still is that it's like a boundary in your life. It's like you're not out, then you are out. And you kind of come out and then you're done. You're out. Little jack in the box. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And, and, you know, I think that actually the process of coming out is something that a lot of people have to do all the time. Um, Not everybody, but I absolutely have to come out to every single person that I ever meet. Like I'm not, you know, telling the people at the McDonald's drive through, like I would like a half meal and I'm bisexual, but like people do not assume that I'm queer. Often, even if they meet me when I'm with my girlfriend, they don't assume that we're together unless we're being like particularly touchy-feely, which is like neither one of us are like super big PDA people. Um, You would be surprised the mental gymnastics that people have to go through to understand that we're a couple even when it's like literally in their face. You have one story about being at a bar and a guy is trying to flirt with you while Anna is there, what happened? Okay, this was really funny. Um, He, Anna was my introduction into this group of people, so he was definitely being very flirtatious, but he, you know, he asked me a pretty normal question, which is how Anna and I met. And I was like, oh, we met on Tinder, which is true. And he, like, paused, computed this, piece of information and then was like oh that's really cool that you can make friends on tinder i didn't realize you're just like people were just out there making friends on tinder and i was like no no we met on tinder for dating we're dating and so it was really funny that he went through these like total mental gymnastics to make it make sense with like an idea that he had and i had to like spell it out so (laughs) dramatically because like you know if somebody met on if somebody said they met on tinder They'd have to really say, but we're friends. God, so Um. funny. Um, How does this come up for you at work? Because I think one of the things that you alluded to in this piece was both the small ways that you choose to or else are culturally obligated to come out all the time versus a more in the moment approach that Anna takes, which is owning your relationships. I think in very much in the way that straight people do that Mm -hmm. it's not unusual to insert into conversation especially in clarifying with someone who may be registering interest in you. Oh, my boyfriend, you know, that common tactic or the casually mentioning a husband or girlfriend or partner. I have definitely had the, oh, when did you come out 
question yeah, yeah. that is related to that Jack in the Box. Yeah. I didn't. I'm, I met someone I was interested in. We're dating. We broke up. I met someone else I was interested in. We're still dating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, people, I mean, that's the, maybe it's just like the stories that have been told about it. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, culturally people just like expect you to be like in and then out and then you're done. I think at work, if I have a new job, I always have to come out um, at the job. Um, have to, you've been saying have to. Is that yeah. for you or for other people or both? Oh, um, definitely for me. You know, sometimes with certain people, I can just slip into conversation I, that I have a girlfriend and it works the same way that it does if I was to say I had a boyfriend. Like with some people, they trip up and a lot of people have follow-up questions. And so it can really derail a conversation and then that's what the conversation becomes about we're talking about something else and it would be weird in this moment to conceal that I have a relationship of any kind but if I say that I have a girlfriend all of a sudden I'm risking the whole conversation becoming about the fact that I have a girlfriend and sometimes it's like fine but like sometimes I just like I'm tired and don't want to talk about it or just like we're having an important conversation about a work thing and derailing it means we may run out of time to like figure out the work thing. So there's just like moments where it just like feels annoying to have to make that part of the conversation. It's I don't feel oppressed by it. It doesn't feel like a big deal. And the fact that I live and work in Los Angeles makes it means that I don't feel that I'm ever in any kind of like I don't feel like I'm in any danger of being discriminated against or creating like a negative situation in a job like I don't feel like there's a thing ever that but it's it's more like um an inconvenience rather than a danger so you just prefer to get it out of the way right away yeah I get it out of the way or like I don't know because also if you don't tell people right away they think you've been hiding something from them part of the growing civil rights for queer people overall has been this in the in the mainstream acceptance of he or she is born this way or they are born this way, which is interesting when you might be exploring your own sexuality. I think as every young person does in some way, I'm specifically thinking of in my early life, having some being a little bit of a late bloomer and then having some stirrings of in that 12 and 13 year old time when like everyone's in middle school and just like flush with hormones and all making out with people and I was someone who never wanted to play spin the bottle had really close relationships with women friends was not was just sort of not sure and I think some of it was a result of not yet having the same overt sexual feelings that people were having and so I was sort of like Am I gay? Am I nothing? Am I just still a kid and no one else is a kid anymore? And I think as I grew older and did find um, attractions and relationships with men, I sort of subsumed some of those curiosity and sense of queerness that I, I sort of the whole time knew was still developing. The one thing is like, if you want to sleep with a man as a femme presenting woman, it is not hard. Nope. <laughs> it is really not hard. Right? And so I think being socialized to be pursued that was sort of like, okay, well, I guess, I guess this is this and I'll, I'll worry about the queer stuff later. You know, did you have any experience of that? Like, I think that's the other thing about taking on a, um, taking on a label of being queer, or being bisexual, which is that sort of, whomever you fall for or become sexually entangled with first, like all of us, sets a big legacy in the rest yeah. of your life. I had the same thing as you where I 
started having like rumblings of feelings for women and I was like I guess I'm a lesbian and then I like enjoy like had a crush on a guy and I'm like maybe I'm not and that was just weird and then I remember um <laughs> hearing the word bisexuality for the first time used to describe Leonardo DiCaprio rumors Amazing. about Leonardo DiCaprio's bisexuality and didn't know what it was I asked my friend and she was like it's like if you're into guys or girls and girls that was her definition at the time and I was like great that's pretty me. serviceable and I clung to it like a life raft but I was young I was I was maybe 13 or 14 I was I was in high school but like like I think it was freshman year I mean it was young and I just remember thinking to myself like okay just you're not going to come out until college. Like, it's great that you're bi and not a lesbian because you can just not think about the fact that you're attracted to women. And I remember very consciously saying, like, just, like, don't let it out. Don't focus on it. Don't, um, like, have any... Just, like, don't think. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it, certainly, but don't think about it. Um, And... I thought that that would be totally fine and that I would go to college and come out as by then and everything would be great. But spending your formative years actively forcing yourself to subsume and ignore large swaths of your identity, it turned out had a pretty dramatic effect on my romantic development when I was younger. I didn't date anybody in high school. I stayed, well, with like, you know, little things aside, I had a couple of big crushes that I lived inside of because it was safer. I think that I really, really wanted to want to have sex. And I think that like, I was one of those people that like hormonally was just like wanted to when I was younger, but I couldn't get over the emotional pitfalls, pitfalls that I created for myself. And it wasn't until I was a senior in college that I had my first truly serious relationship. And it wasn't until I was about a sophomore or junior that I really came into my own sexually. And that's not to say that like, that's when I lost my virginity. Um, I had a virginity loss experience my senior year of high school, but I didn't really understand myself sexually. And I think spending a really long time denying who I was had a really profound effect on how I related to other people romantically. And it was just safer to not. Did you feel comfortable exploring your sexuality with yourself is another thing I'm interested in. We get a lot of listener questions about varying from I'm not in a position to date right now for X, Y reasons, or I'm really having trouble enjoying sex. Was that something that you, because I think there's a sense of people grow up sexually repressed or not. You are in a open community or not. And there's, again, so much gray area in the middle. I think, um, and I don't really know why, I never, I felt very comfortable exploring my sexuality solo when I was younger. I felt very comfortable talking about sex. I am very comfortable talking about sex. Part of that is where I went to college. I had a really good friend who worked in the Sexual Information Center at Oberlin. I think my friends just encouraged openness and it was natural for me. I'm, I'm, I don't have a lot of repression when it comes to sex. I have a lot of repression when it comes to emotional relationships, or I had it. I think that I'm in, um, I've gotten to a, like a, a place where that no longer, that repression no longer affects me. But I think that 
in emotional relationships, romantic relationships, showing people that I cared about them, that was something where I was a lot more stunted. Um, and I think that maybe, I'm just thinking of this right now as I'm speaking, but maybe one of the reasons why it was relatively easy for me to develop a kind of openness about the sex part of my sexuality is because I really wanted to explore it and that was the avenue of least resistance um, emotionally, to mentally. Yeah, totally. It's, um, it's always good to talk to a literary-minded, open friend about their life experience. And I think it is, it's so interesting. Like, like money, when you talk about sex, you're really talking about emotions and yeah. values and our sense of selves and how we express ourselves and around whom and how much, right? That it feels like, even though, you know, I thought like, oh, we're going to have this like kind of smutty conversation. Yeah. It's like, well, no, we're talking about feelings. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. talking about personal stories and life experience because that's... That's how this stuff all gets wrapped up. One thing that's like, I think that the kids are doing that is kind of on the smut side, just to put a little excitement in oh, it. Oh, yeah. Is I think that when we were coming up, there was like a real kind of condescension towards the idea of sexual experimentation, mm. right? Like, I Say think more. women were considered either foolish for sexual experimenting or it was like for the male gaze to like experiment with women. Um, the I kissed a girl and I liked it version. Totally. Yeah. The, this, you know, kissing someone at a party, you know, having it be a public thing rather than something that's developing one-on-one -on -one between people. And I also think that like a lot of lesbians of our generation were pretty anti the idea of experimentation because like, you know, people can get hurt when you experiment. Like two women who think that they maybe want to have sex with each other and then one of them is like, you know, actually like I love our friendship but I'm not sexually interested in women and I discovered that by trying to have sex with you. I mean, that Huge sucks. ego blow. Yeah, I mean, there was a story about that on Six Feet Under. I can't remember the name of the character, the, the daughter, the main girl. Claire. Claire. Claire was the one who, you know, started getting into this sexual relationship with Mina Savari at art school and kind of discovered that she wasn't sexually interested in women via having sexual experimentation with Mina Savari. And Mina turned on her afterwards. Her whole friend group turned on her. I mean, like, and of course she was very hurt, but like the moral of the story is like experimentation is like mean and bad, but like that's how you figure out who you want to fuck and you, and you have to experiment. And I feel like kids these days are experimenting more and um, then that gets wrapped up in the, the way that we talk about sex in the country in general, mm. which is that like, it should be normal and chill and cool for teenagers to be sexually experimenting with each other. Like, it should be normal and chill and cool if a teenager doesn't want to. But if you want to, you should. And it should just feel open. And we should try to create a culture where, like, we're just like, if you are 16 and you feel like you want to fuck, you should fuck. And, like, as long as you're not exploiting anyone else in the process yeah. or compromising yourself, right? And understanding that... You, you may hurt people emotionally, which is, to which is different than exploiting people. You know, like if you genuinely think that you might want to have sex with somebody and then you realize you don't and you hurt that person, like that sucks ass, but it's fine. Like that's normal and fine. But like, you know, if you mischaracterize yourself in order to gain access to somebody sexually, that's like unchill. 
that's not highly funny. unchill that's highly, highly unchill, unchill. <laughs> technically a kind of rape yes yes not not just technically yeah um you are a genius at the internets are there great fix tv shows that you love movies that are out that you think feature a kind of positive and let's let's be frank feminist characterization of sexuality right because i think porn for example can be very fraught porn for women can be fraught there's, and especially lesbian porn because it's yeah. filmed for the male gaze. There is a lesbian porn company called, I think it's called like Pink Box or mm. Little Pink Box or Big Pink Box. Who knows? Mm. Something with a pink box. Google it. You'll find it. That is... Safe um, search off. Safe search off. It is um, porn like by women for women. I find it a little, it is occasionally a little soft mm-hmm. um, or, or just like cheesy. It's a little cheesy. You yeah. have to be able to do cheese, but it is porn that is for the female gaze of women who want to have sex with women. So if you're, if you've been looking, that's where to go for porn specifically. There are so few good depictions of bisexuality in television and in movies. I mean, there are just so few that I think really capture like the richness of the way that bisexual people have relationships across the gender spectrum. I think the L word is fun, but stay away from the politics around bisexuality on that show. They are, it's a super biphobic show. So um, if you have some kind of like internalized shit based on watching the L word, like, sorry about your life, but like, just ignore them. They're stupid. Um, It's a soap and it's it's an old soap. soap. It's an old soap and they were wrong then and they're still wrong. Um, I'm hoping Still love Shane though. A whole generation of women obsessed with Shane. I had a long conversation with another bisexual woman about um, how Shane, the actress Kate Moaning, who played Shane, also was this sort of 12th night star of a brief WB series called Young Americans. Did you oh, watch yeah, this show? Absolutely did. It was yeah. the summer series. I don't they know. wanted it to be a Levi commercial and they didn't quite get there. It was like an Abercrombie catalog yeah. sponsored by Coke ran in the summer. Oh yeah, it was sponsored by Coke. Yes. I forgot about that. Yes. There was that scene with like Kate Bosworth at a gas station yes. that I remember because That's the opening. Yes. Yeah. And remember she like has like a Coke in a bottle that yes. she like uncapped like an old timey um like attached to the coke machine bottle opener and i was like no one drinks coke like this and i am aroused sexually <laughs> like that's what i felt um there's a tv show called that is like truly awful but the politics around bisexuality are really good uh-huh. it is called the lost girl it is a canadian science fiction series about a bisexual succubus and her adventures in terms of like execution especially of the like sci-fi plot elements it's <laughs> like really bad there's nothing at any moment that anyone says that sounds like a person and not a character there but, is no boner killer like bad writing yeah but the politics around the romantic relationships that the main character has, one with a male-identified person, one with a female-identified person, they're pretty cool. I, I've had some people complain about how some of the sex scenes with the female love interest are a little bit male gazy, but 
what can you do? Um, Change the ratios behind the camera, y'all. Yeah. We're all working on it. <laughs> yeah, we're all working Workplace on it. Workplace politics benefit us in terms of our lusty gazes, too. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I will say that it was a character that has many sexual relationships with men and with women, a show that valued the relationships that she had with men and with women and considered them with equal weight while not making them bland and samey. Like each relationship had their, like the problems that it would confront, different dynamics. She spent long periods of time dating one of them, long periods of time dating the other. Um, and it was complicated and dynamic and it's five seasons. And Great. Uh, you can watch all of it, I think, on Netflix. Nice. Um, if you can get past a little bit of bad sci-fi, it's really great. Um, Anything else on your um, on your smutty queue? Uh, this is not smutty, but I just read a novel called Conversations with Friends. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that? Yes. The central character is bisexual and goes through a couple of relationships. Um, I think in a pretty authentic way to the way mm-hmm. bisexuality plays out. So that's a great novel to look at. Um, I think that like there's just truly a dearth of good bisexual content on television mm-hmm. and and in movies and we just need to get out there and start creating it. Yeah, like everything, more representation. Yeah. More options. Yes. Um, I really gravitated towards something you just said about like the richness of bisexual relationships and mm-hmm. bisexual people and what it means to kind of approach people in your life across genders as potential lovers or partners and a really funny thing that I experienced when I started dating my current partner was having previously been in a relationship with a woman and being like, I don't know if I still know how to do this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sexually, that, that is like, especially if you, um, I'm personally someone who goes through, I'm sort of the classic serial monogamist. So getting right. really deep and intense with one other person, both emotionally and with their bod. And I think this is something everyone experiences of like, oh, this is a different type of sexuality with any different person would be like, do I know how to manipulate your parts to give you pleasure? was like a very funny re-virginizing kind of experience. Have you had something like that in the past? Oh my God. I mean, uh, first of all, totally. Um, It had been a little while since I had sex with a woman, not like a super long time, but a, a, a bit before I started dating my current girlfriend. I think that like... It, I was just, I just candidly was going through like a super slutty phase right before nice. I started dating her. It was great. But like, as I think we've talked about, it's pretty easy to pick up men for sex and harder to pick up women for sex. And I'm also a lot more sexually intimidated by women and there's no lesbian bars anymore. So I couldn't just go find them. In Los Angeles. Yeah. I'm like, I feel like there's no lesbian bars fucking anywhere anymore. Um, there's ladies nights. We've got rotating parties. But like, I think that it was harder for me to pick up women than men. I was more scared. And so I had had less sexual experience with women. And I was like, did I forget how to do everything? And I'm definitely one of the like cultural narratives that I think is probably super skewed and wrong that I, I sometimes succumb to personally is the idea that it's like harder to have sex with a woman than with a man. I think that like probably it's actually like, giving a blowjob is like the hardest fucking thing for me. Like it's like, I understand it conceptually. Like I get how to do it. It's just like physically hard to like execute. execute. Yeah. I think for a while I had this idea that I was like, fuck, like I've forgotten. Like it's so hard to please a woman and it's, and you know, 
I've forgotten how to do it. But like truly every single time you start to have like serious sex with another person, you have to relearn their body. Just like you were saying, everybody's body is different and what people need is different and yeah, what they're into and yeah, exactly. Yeah. And anytime that you're like in a serious monogamous relationship with somebody, like the stuff that they like, you get good at. And then if that relationship ends and you go to somebody else and they like something different, you're like, I haven't, I spent five years practicing not doing this. (laughs) So I don't know. Right. I have a very different area of X. It's like I got hired for the wrong job but like yeah. how do I gain my skills yeah, real quick exactly yeah, yeah totally um do you have strategies if when you were seeking I don't know if you and Anna are in a closed relationship but we are yeah yeah but if you were seeking to um pick up a woman versus picking up a guy do you have tactics do you have like oh, do you god. flirt the same do you well, like what's your what's your approach what's your steez oh god um I'm like Anna would tell you that I am my least sexy or appealing when I'm trying, when I have like any intention to be sexy. Like I I just can't do it now. Like I'm sure that there have been like plenty of moments in my life when I have been sexy. They were 100% not times that I tried. I think for me, the only thing that I'm, that works for me is being open and straightforward with what I want. I'm like not emotionally capable of playing any kind of game anymore it's like too potentially painful I do not and so like I'm also 30s no time yeah, for that yeah I don't have time for like a fun will we or won't we crush mm-hmm. so I'm like pretty straightforward um I ask for what I want that's my only move mm. is basically being like to the point of where like I can will like, like my only move is being like I want to have sex <laughs> like truly but boldness. Yes. So boldness. Here's the thing is that like boldness totally works with the right people. Um, I, it's a really hard thing to do for me personally. One thing I discovered is that like if I'm not bold and I'm rejected by like it not happening, I'm just as sad as if I've been bold and been rejected. Like it is not worse when I've explicitly asked and been told no than when I kind of like angled towards it and was given no. And in fact, like I'm a lot more full of regret if I didn't ask them like, what if they rejected me because they didn't know that I wanted it? And and then I string myself along emotionally. Mm. And that is when I get into bad patterns with romantic relationships. So my only... This got serious, but my only thing is just like, I would love a world where people were just like, I would like to fuck and then be like, I wouldn't, or I would, you know, Um, that'd be great. It'd be like painful sometimes, but it's already fucking painful. This is a show where we talk a lot about friendship and the deep friend intimacy between women. Have you had an experience or just in your general advice for someone who may be uncertain about whether a relationship with another woman is a friendship or if they're developing romantic feelings, how you broach that. Because I do think that the intimacy that is platonic between women is a really special thing. Oh yeah. It is a very scary, very scary proposition to transition any deep close friendship into anything different. And I think that no matter what, it's not easy and there's no tricks. I think that if somebody is starting to feel that maybe they have more romantic feelings towards a close friend, 
I think that it is worthwhile to go and explore whether those sexual feelings are present with other women. I think that you can, even if like you think one day you might come back to the person that you're close to, like there's truly no harm in like going out and like dancing with women or just being in queer spaces. If you're not like, if you live in Los Angeles and you're not like a club person, you don't like dance nights. There's this great coffee shop on the east side of LA called Cuties Coffee. Um, There may be other spaces like that springing up in other cities I don't know about, but just like putting yourself in queer spaces, especially if you're like a person who's identified as straight who hasn't been in a lot of queer spaces, like you're allowed to go in there. It'll be really scary, but like that's where you go to explore, like see if those communities feel right to you. And it may be that you are experiencing the beginning of romantic feelings for someone of the same gender and they've automatically gone on to the person that you're closest to. And if you genuinely and deeply explore that part of yourself, you may find, oh yeah, like I have a real crush on my friend. Or you may find that you don't want to change your deep close friendship with your wonderful female friend, but you want to pursue romantic relationships with other women. I think that the thing that ruins dynamics more often than anything else is a person suppressing their own desires, their own needs. And I think that if you explore that need, you're going to get to an emotionally better place with it. So that even if you get to a position where you're like, I'm truly in romantic and sexual love with my best friend and they don't reciprocate, you will be in a better place with yourself where your friendship is more likely to survive it. Katie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Where can people find you on the internet? I'm best on Twitter. My Twitter is at Katie Alert, C-A-T-I-E-A-L-E-R-T. And read your book, The Ghost Network. Yes, my book is called The Ghost Network. You don't have to believe me, believe Gina. Read it. Yeah. Thanks so much to Katie DeCebedo. There are a ton of links to stuff we talked about on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. I would love to hear more from you about anything that we talked about in this episode, whether you're trying to figure out if your bestie is a romantic interest, the queer media that you love to consume, how you figure out stuff that turns you on without turning off your feminist brain, how you identify your sexuality, what you like or dislike about the letter B, but also particularly stuff that we didn't talk about. And most particularly, if you're not a cis white lady like me and the people I talk to on this show, we want to hear more of your experiences and would love to pepper in some of your voicemails. So that number again is 714-681-CYGF. And you can find us so many more places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at callyrgf. Don't forget about our blood drive for Amina. You can sign up at callyourgirlfriend.com slash blood drive. Like we said, there are some discriminatory rules about who can give blood and who can't. Those come from the FDA and unfortunately our blood bank partners must adhere to them but there's other info if you'd like to get involved in some other way you can email us callyrgf at gmail.com and like i said leave us a voicemail and tell us about 
something sexy or something personal that you think other listeners might be interested to hear. 714-681-2943. 714-681-CYGF. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. All original music was composed by Carolyn Pennybacker Riggs. Our theme song is by Robin, and this podcast is produced by me, Gina Delbach. Amina and Anne will be back next week, and we'll all see you on the internet. Oh my God, thank you, Gina. That was the best. <laughs> Gina, you are the best. Cannot wait to have you in the host seat again. See you on the internet. <laughs> see you on the internet. Bye. <laughs>